you can be devoted to your job and be devoted to your profession and be devoted to the craft that design is, but you can also be over devoted to all those things. And you're surrounded by people who, you know, who love you and who you love and, uh, um, you owe them the same kind of attention that you owe, you know, some typeface. Right. Hmm. And I think it's, um, all of us kind of have divided loyalties in that regard. And I think, um, it's important to remember that you have to sort of like strike a balance between all those things. The giant thinkers. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hello, wonderful giants. Ram here. This is episode number 57. Our guest today is arguably one of the graphic design industry's most well-known designers. He worked at Vignelli Associates for 10 years before joining Pentagram as a partner in 1990, where he still works till this day after 28 years and counting. His clients at Pentagram have included the New York Times, Saks Fifth Avenue, the Robin Hood Foundation, MIT Media Lab, MasterCard, Princeton University, the New York Jets, and the Brooklyn Academy of Music. As a volunteer to Hillary Clinton's communications team, he designed the H logo that was visible everywhere throughout her 2016 presidential campaign. Our guest also served as the national president of AIGA from 1998 to 2001. Uh, He is also a senior critic in graphic design at the Yale School of Art and is also one of the founding writers of the Design Observer blog. He's paved quite an extraordinary life and I can't wait for you to hear this. Some of the topics we spoke about include his favorite typographic font of all time, his thoughts, feelings and actions when he started out as an emerging designer, his interpretation of corporate identities versus branding, and his advice for those that feel stuck in a creative rut. If you're someone who is interested in the fusion of visual communication, career development, and making creative impact, then this is absolutely for you. Now, before we dive in, I'd like to introduce you to my image search library of choice called Stocksy. Now, some of you may have heard of it, some of you may not. Uh, They provide royalty-free stock photography and cinematic video footage now as well. Out of all the photo and video stock libraries available, why is Stocksy one of my top favorites? Well, I'll give you three reasons. The first is that the library isn't full of cheesy, overused assets. Stocksy uses a highly curated editing approach to carefully select the most useful and authentic photos to include in their collection. It's because their business model differs from traditional stock photography companies. Their business focuses on creative integrity, fair pay, fair profit sharing, and co-ownership for its members and artists. 
The second reason why I love Stocksy is that it's very, very easy to use. The searching, the filtering, and the navigating is all clear. It's intuitive and super simple. They even have a drag and drop search feature. If you have an image and want to see a similar image on Stocksy, you just need to drag any image into their website and Stocksy will populate anything that is related for you to review. And the third reason why I love Stocksy is because they have raised the bar and the industry's expectations when it comes to stock photography and cinematography. The quality is quite remarkable and incredibly distinct. You'll see the difference immediately upon searching on there, and you'll struggle to go back to the other libraries you were using. The quality is just too good. And I know I said three, but I'll squeeze in a fourth, and that is price point. Their images are seriously generous in price, if you ask me. They start at just $15 USD. Now, as a listener of the podcast, you can take advantage of their 15% off discount. Head to giantthinkers.com slash Stocksy. Once again, that's giantthinkers.com slash S-T-O. C-K-S-Y. Okay, that's plenty from me. Let's get straight into this one. I present to you the highly accomplished, inspiring, and level-headed Michael Beirut. Michael Beirut, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, Ram. How about you? Doing good, doing good. We finally uh, found a time to tee this up. Last time uh, we connected in person was at the uh, 2016 AIGA conference in Las Vegas. Uh, so That's I'm, right. I'm glad that uh, we could connect and chat here. First off, Michael, I have an icebreaker question for you. Yep, go ahead. What would be your favorite typographic font of all time and why? I don't know if people always answer that question enthusiastically. It's a hard <laughs> one to, uh, it's actually a hard one for me. I like typography a lot more than anything else in the world, maybe, uh, in particularly in, in the world of graphic design. And um, I like picking different typefaces. So I'm not the kind of person who I think could settle on one and just use it for the rest of my life. That said, there's a, um, a strange typeface. Um, called uh, Schmalfetta that I knew from my first job working for Massimo Vignelli. Uh, and we used it a lot then. And the only form we had it in was a, um, uh, there's a series of books that were published, I think, in Switzerland called Lettera, L-E-T-T-E-R-A. And there are multiple volumes of it. The first volume of it had a showing A through Z of this typeface, only capital letters. It's a severely condensed typeface, beautifully drawn, very straight sides on all the letters, including round letters like O's and R's and things like that. And you could set it so tight and it just was so bold. And I, um, and Massimo always conceded that, uh, uh, when he used it, he was really imitating still another designer. He was, he was an homage to another designer named Billy Fleckhaus, who's a German designer who really used it a lot of the magazine he designed called Twin. So this is all like ancient history. Fleckhaus did his magazine, I think, in the 60s and 70s. I was working for the Vignelli's in the 80s. Um, and then there's, there was this funny typeface that was just really bold and condensed. And um, probably maybe five years ago or so, I was working on a project and I said, you know what would be fun for this if we used 
there's this typeface I've only seen. I had a copy of that book that I used to make photostats of this typeface out of when I worked for Vignelli. And I said to one of my designers, um, Britt Cobb, uh, for this project, I'd love to use this typeface. I don't, I don't even know what it's called because it didn't have a name on the page. But he looked it up in the back and it said it was like designed in the late 50s and it's called Schmall Feta. And, um, no, Slim Feta. Hang on one second, Ram. Hang on, hang on. I'm going to go get the book. Hang on. Go for it. <laughs> I'm sorry, you can edit that out. It's a podcast as a visual medium. Here's the book, Latera, as I said. I've been calling it the wrong thing all along. Hang on one second. Here's the typeface. Um, stand by. Um, but so we, um, we literally started with the letters in this book and um, uh, scanned them. And then another designer on my team, Jessica Svensson, actually digitized them and converted them into a usable alphabet. And um, when we had, here it is. Ah. So it's this typeface. See, super, uh, super condensed, super cool looking. Page 105. So if I look it up here, it'll say it's officially called, yeah, Schmal Feta Grotesque by a guy named Walter Hittenschweiler, who I've never heard of before, designed in 1954. So at any rate, we digitized it ourselves and then had, I think, Jeremy Meckel, a professional font designer, come in and really work out the kerning for us. So we used it on this one project, then we used it on another project. We still use it on projects. Somehow in the midst of that, some real professional people actually digitized it and released it, re-released it commercially finally after it having been you know, kind of not available for decades. And I have to admit, the fun kind of went out of it a little bit for me when all of a sudden it was like easy to get. That was, that like took the thrill of a chase out of it for me. But it still is a typeface where I can just like take even a single letter of it and I just find it really great to work with. And it's one of those ones like Helvetica, like just a few other typefaces where as you're using it, you can kind of feel it almost, it designs itself to a certain degree. You know, in some ways, it's not very versatile. It's sort of like really, you know, you can't use it a lot of different ways. It really has to be set really tight. It's only, you know, to my knowledge, it only has um, an uppercase. Uh, but it's one of those ones, you know, like Helvetica, like a few other ones, where it really feels like it has its own point of view. And um, that can be oppressive. I think a lot of people's uh, distaste for Helvetica has to do with the fact that it kind of is... Uh, um, a uh, typeface where you know it kind of wants you to use it a certain way uh even though it has a certain kind of inherent versatility it sort of does actually kind of before anything else it looks like helvetica mm. this one's not as well known it doesn't quite have the i think uh cultural and aesthetic connotations that a well-known typeface like helvetica has but it has some of that same characteristic of kind of having a its own point of view so i would say as a, as a secret pleasure of mine that's the one i would name not because it's exotic and most people have never heard of it or wouldn't even recognize it, or they confuse it with a typeface like impact or helvetica compressed or something two typefaces that i really dislike intensely um uh, but um but it's just one where i you know even when I look at it, it sort of it makes me both nostalgic and um, still I can be thrilled when I when I kind of just one word of it just kind of really will do it for me. Even one letter, like I said, like a nice R. Right there. I love that. Um, I have a side question to that. That uh, out of curiosity, yeah, go ahead. And that is, you said specifically even one letter 
it's as if it's designed itself. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. For the person that is not a formally trained designer or a designer at all, how would you explain that uh, as a why? Well, I'm again, I, at this stage of my life, I've been doing this for so long that I've lost track of what normal people think when they see things like letters. And so when I start talking about it, I can, it can sound fairly bizarre even to me sometimes that I'm <laughs> kind of uh, projecting all these characteristics on just a helpless, you know, bunch of alphabet letters, right? Where most people would just want to s- figure out what the thing says and move on, right? So, but I think it's, um, you know, there are certain typefaces that are designed to be neutral and you're not meant to, they're meant to kind of like go down really easy. They have no crunchy center. They have no sharp edges. You're just, they're just meant to kind of like go right into your eyes, into your brain and out, out the other end of your brain and just kind of communicate their message and leave no residue. Right. Um, now some people would argue, I bet there's a lot of typographers and typeface designers that would argue there's no such thing as that, right? There's a famous essay by a lady called Beatrice Ward called the crystal goblet in which she says that good typesetting should be like, you know, a crystal goblet in which you're served wine where you know, there's nothing about the actual container that's distracting you from the taste of the wine. And she says typography should be invisible like that. Um, you know, a lot of people would say that that's just not possible, that every typeface has some sort of aesthetic claim that it's making. And um, and I think for graphic designers, our, one of our skills is being really attentive to what those claims are. I think civilians, normal people who aren't trained graphic designers, I would argue that they, without knowing it, kind of can intuitively sense, you know, oh, these words look more official or these words look more casual or this looks like it's expensive or this looks like it's cheap. And that's not because necessarily there's inherent characteristics in those typefaces that look expensive or cheap or official or playful or anything else. Um, It's because people have been associated for so long with, you know, a typeface you would put on chewing gum versus a typeface you would put on the, you know, carbon marble over the door of a church versus a typeface you would put on a legal document versus a typeface you would put on a uh, bottle of perfume. They're all different things. Um, you could actually use the same typeface on all of them. And if the perfume was smelled good enough and the church had a passionate congregation, it would still work. And then eventually people would see that typeface and think, oh, yeah, I, I know that from my church or from my favorite perfume, whatever it was. So, um, it's not necessarily inherent in the typefaces, but I think overall people kind of start to navigate the world by saying, oh, that, you know, someone makes some choices, often a designer, an art director, creative person of some sort, and that ends up kind of building in the connotations that any of these decisions have. And so, like, particularly with Small Feta, one of the things about it is, like, it's, um, it's interesting because it's a sans serif typeface, meaning that it has no feet. It was done fairly recently in the history of typeface design, whereas mid-20th century typeface. I don't think it looks particularly old-fashioned. It kind of has that characteristic that Helvetica has, where that was designed in 1957. And I don't think people look at it and think, ooh, that looks like the 50s to me. It just looks like lettering. You know, it's sort of designed to be neutral. Uh, Schmalfetta is sort of like not designed to be neutral. It's designed to sort of look really bold and powerful, I think. Um, 
but you can, what's cool about it is you can, I mean, if you, I mean, I've done things, uh, I've seen things and I've done things with that typeface where you just like one word could be huge and another one could be really tiny and they just kind of play off each other so really beautifully. Nice. And uh, there's a lot of typefaces that you can't do that with. You know, like I'd say most typefaces just don't have that capacity to be interesting when you blow them up and still be legible and they're really small. So that's one of the things I like about them. Again, I don't know if normal people, normal people listening to this just might think that what I was describing was insane or, <laughs> or uh, you know, or I was hallucinating or something. And they might be right, you know, because I've been overexposed to this stuff. That's great. That explains it very well. <laughs> uh, thank you for, for sharing that. Where would you say your expertise lies, Michael? Um, I think I've got two parallel skills that I've mastered over the years. One is I think, you know, I'm a good designer and I know a lot of other good designers. And um, uh, I think I was a good designer when I was, um, you know, studying graphic design at my university. And I think I was a good graphic designer when I was, you know, a junior junior assistant designer on my first job back in 1980. And I think I'm still a good designer, right? Um, so there's, there's like the skill that it takes to be a designer, which just has to do with, with kind of being able to resolve, um, you know, the, the, the tools that we have to work with, which could be typography or image or motion or materials or, um, you know, all the different things that come into play when you're communicating a message and, you know, to an audience to, uh, for a specific purpose, which I think is what graphic design specifically is. Um, so there's that set of skills. Um, but I think the thing that I've gotten better at over the years that I didn't know how to do at all, you know, back, you know, 37 years ago in 1980 was, um, working with people in order to bring them along, bring them to a place where they can, um, come to accept sort of a recommendation I'm making about design or so that I can kind of understand what it is they want from a a problem. So I think what I've gotten better at is with, you know, working with groups of people, which sometimes are clients, sometimes they're um, users or stakeholders, sometimes they're collaborators. But I think a lot of times uh, uh, the, um, you know, the challenge is, is that these decisions that we get really good at making that have to do with picking between, you know, Helvetica and accidents grotesque and circular or Neuhaus grotesque or something typefaces that to a normal person all look exactly the same. And we make a big fuss about, Oh, it can't be this. It has to be that. So we're, we're really into making those decisions, but to normal people, they sort of, you know, to the degree that they can tell there's a choice to be made, they almost have to make it, you know, we have to ask them to make it intuitively because you can't logically say that this typeface is proved demonstrably better than this one. And this color is demonstrably better than that one. You know, you make your assessment as a designer based on your own experience and expertise. And then you, you hope that you're client or your collaborators will trust that decision. But what happens is usually they don't. They've got lots of reasons, you know, I mean, why should they trust you? I mean, you see every, we think, we think we just are guaranteed that trust, but it turns out that, uh, that you have to earn it. Right. So I think what I've gotten good at since 1980 is going into a room and figuring out, okay, what do these people want out of this situation? 
what kind of questions do I need to ask and get answered before I can do my work properly? What kind of fears do they have that I have to assuage somehow? What kind of ambitions do they have that I have to help them fulfill? And if you can kind of go through a whole series of questions like that, where you're able to accurately assess the situation at the outset and then um, figure out a way to um, take those people through a series of steps that lead them to a long, lead them on a journey that gets them to a solution that really will both solve their problems, satisfy you um, uh, creatively, and do work that everyone can be proud of. That actually takes a whole bunch of skills that have nothing at all to do with kerning or color or you know, resolving scale on a page or working out a perfect sort of you know, UX experience, like those things are all just the things that the skills that we've mastered that no one else knows how to do. But figuring out how to connect those up with what people do want out of the process, which, you know, no one says, I want to have a pretty color, you know, that's not what they want. They have some other goal that they're able to sometimes express accurately and sometimes express in terms that you can immediately understand. And sometimes they express it in terms that, you know, you have trouble figuring out why is this even a design problem, right? Mm. And that's the part I've gotten good at. So to the degree that everyone, I, like all my partners are good at design, most all the designers that work for me are good at design. Um, I'm almost willing to concede that I'm average as a designer. What I think I'm really good at is actually working with people and figuring out how to bring them along in the design process even if they know nothing about it and are distrustful of it. Mm, very cool. So I will uh, dive into a bit about your childhood and it would probably blend in well with this uh, area of um, back then in the 70s and 80s, books that were available on graphic design uh, were quite scarce, but two in particular uh, that I've read that influenced your pursuit to become a designer were the graphic design manual by Armin Hoffman and Milton Glaser's book titled Graphic Design. What other influences were you exposed to that gave you the inspiration to not choose a more traditional job at the time? Well, I think it's it's really difficult. It's difficult even for me to remember what it was like back then because it seems really weird that there was once a time when, you know, before, obviously before the internet, where information and access to information was really a challenge. It was really difficult. I grew up in, in Ohio, which is uh, not near a big, any big metropolitan areas like, um, like Chicago or New York. It's 500 miles from New York city. And, um, when I was when I was growing up, I didn't know anyone who did anything like art or design. You know, it, it just that wasn't you know the milieu that I was raised in. I had a like lovely childhood, wonderful parents, and everything else. Um, but like everyone's dad was, you know, I knew people's dad who worked at the auto plant, who were, uh, you know, my dad sold printing presses, so at least he sort of understood about that. But it took me a long time to connect up what he did a shockingly long time to kind of for me to connect about what he did with what I wanted to do. Um, but so I started out just um, like a lot of kids and a lot of future designers being good at art and thinking that I had this like interest and passion for doing artistic things, kind of creative things more generally put. Um, but I'd say like the things that I was influenced by, I remember like, you know, I can remember seeing things like, 
book covers or record sleeves back when it was all vinyl. So every record was packaged in a big 12 inch square package that had, you know, a giant square foot of artwork on the front and the back. And often if you open it up, there were two more square feet of, you know, images to see on the inside. Um, you know, movie posters, you know, the opening titles to movies. I can remember specific movies, specific posters, specific book covers, specific album covers that I saw when I was, uh, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15, and thought those were really cool. Or even like, you know, logos and things. You know, I would, there are certain kind of signs and corporate logos that I saw that I remember thinking, oh, that's clever the way that they did that, you know, the way they, um, uh, the way they connected up those two letters or the way that they used the, um, the way they came up with a symbol to kind of represent what the company did. For some reason, I was able to, I was attuned to that in a way that I, you know, as opposed to just being interested in, in pure artistic expression, I think there was something interesting to me about somehow people were using creativity to kind of solve puzzles in a way. And I could sense that someone, you know, someone said to the Beatles, we have a new record and it's going to be called Revolver. We need a cover for it. Do you have an idea for what it could look like? Right. And then someone, in that case, Klaus Vorman had to come up with an idea for what the cover would look like. Right. And sort of like that seemed more interesting to me than just sort of like being alone in a room with a white canvas and thinking, okay, I'm going to paint, you know, I'm going to paint some apples today or I'm going to paint a ship you know, in the ocean today. I mean, like, why would you, I can't figure out why you would pick any of those things. Or if you're, you know, more, more likely what you would do is I'm going to, you know, just paint giant orange shapes or splatter things all over the canvas, you know, do some, you know, I just couldn't fathom why people, I mean, I appreciate it when they did it, but I couldn't figure out like, why, you know, why would you do that? On the other hand, the idea of someone coming in and saying, um, would you do the cover of our new record? And it's going to be called this, and we want it to look like that. I mean, I sort of that really seemed exciting to me. Or someone saying, you know, we've—I I remember before I even knew Milton Glaser's name, I remember seeing uh, um, this series of covers he did for um, this paperback series of Shakespeare plays, and you know, each one had a Milton Glaser drawing on it, and beautiful classic typography too. And I just remember seeing, oh, how great it would be to figure out, you know, okay, I'm doing Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet and Macbeth and King Lear and Richard III and A Midsummer's Night's Dream, et cetera. And I have to do one drawing for each of them that sort of sums up the action in those plays. What an interesting problem to have, you know, what an interesting sort of challenge. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to do that. But it wasn't until I saw when I was probably 16 or 17, I happened almost by accident to come across a series of books, starting with a book before the Armin Hoffman one, a book called Get Started with Graphic Design and Commercial Art or something like that. It was, uh, it was, it was like a, it was like almost like a, a, a guide for, it was about careers in graphic design, right? Or Aim High. It was called Aim for a Career in Graphic Design slash Art. Aim is called the Aim High series. This is called Aim for, and there's a bunch of other books like Aim High, Aim for a Career in Plumbing, or Aim for a Career in uh, in um, Gardening, and this was Aim Aim for a Career in Graphic Design. But I saw this book and I thought, oh, this is exactly what I want to do. And so it had a name. Then I was able to do some research by standing by looking through cards and library files, and I found a couple other books, including the uh, Armin Hoffman one that led me to the Milton Glaser one. So I sort of educated myself before I even went to um, uh, went off to college to study it in earnest.
There's a gentleman named uh, Chris Pullman who you studied under as an intern. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the vice president of uh, design for WGBH and also known as the 2002 AIJ medalist. He described you as a person who's very easy to understand, both when you talk to him and when he's doing his work. Michael's accessible, humane, funny when it's appropriate and witty almost all of the time. And that's a very important quality for someone who wants to be a communicator. So, Michael, what can you share to us about your time working with Chris Pullman that helped you navigate the direction of your design career? So, you know, I worked for, I went to the University of Cincinnati and then I did a series of internships, uh, placements while I was going there. And one of them was in the graphic design department that Chris was then running, uh, in um in boston at this television station so what's interesting about wgbh is that it's a non-profit educational television network so the shows that it runs are you know it doesn't it's not a it's not a commercial network it's part of the public broadcasting system um in the united states so it shows um you know, documentaries, uh, programs that were originated by the BBC or other public television stations and WGBH itself would sponsor or originate certain, uh, series as well. So that, um, that meant that the network there or the, the station also created a lot of, um, supporting material for the shows that they had. They would create teacher's guides. They would create, um, often there'd be books they would co-publish with the series. Um, they, you know, and even set design, each of the shows had its own separate identity to a certain degree. So there'd be a cooking show, a gardening show, um, a show that was effectively Shakespeare adaptations, a documentary series about Vietnam, and each one would have its own kind. With each one would be its own little brand in a way, right? And so it was a, that department was great to work in because there was, you know, there was just so much work to do, and it was also very intelligent. Uh, um, you know, Boston is has probably more colleges and universities than any. Um, uh, than any American city. It's got, you know, Harvard and MIT are both there as well as, you know, a bunch of other ones like Emerson and, you know, really good schools there. And so WGBH was almost viewed as sort of like a, an academic institution as much as a television station. So it was like a really great place to continue your education, which is what I effectively did there. So I was like, I was like a, I was one of two interns that were there. And, um, Chris was already really, uh, had built a reputation as being a really great um, in-house creative director. You know, he wasn't working in a consulting firm like other designers I admired, like Ivan Shermayev or Rudy DeHerrick or uh, um, Massimo Vignelli, all of whom were consulting designers in New York. Instead, he had taken this job where all he did all day was work at the same television station. And he worked there for decades. He worked there for 30 years, 40 years, a long, long time. And so I, when I was there, he was still relatively new. Uh, it would have been 1978, I think. And one of the things I remember, I remember two things about him when I got there. Um, one was that I'd been studying in, under really good professors um, at the University of Cincinnati who took design very seriously and taught it in a very, the best theoretical way. So they taught design like a science. And in fact, I the degree I got was a bachelor of science and design degree, but it was like taught in a, as you know, very theoretically, Chris 
was and is a really practical designer. Like he would, if you were working on something, he'd always ask like the same kinds of questions. They're always like, um, you know, what's this for? Who's supposed to see this thing? What do you want them to do when they see it? Um, don't you think this might confuse them? You know, he always asked these questions that had very little to do with, um, what typeface are you using or, you know, esoteric design critique things about the appearance of things. It was always much more about intention and effect and effectiveness. Yet he wasn't, um, he wasn't, uh, he, I, he was like, he was a fantastic designer too. So it wasn't like he was one of these guys who says, you know, it can look like crap, but if it works, it's good design. He also wanted to really, everything to be really intelligent and witty and everything else. And I can remember he could be reductive. He could get things boiled down to its essence without feeling like it was minimalism where you were just being served a single piece of white bread on a white plate. You still felt nourished somehow by what you were getting from his designs, but they were always like really clear and had a kind of simplicity to them without being simplistic. So he just had this way of like kind of um, talking about design that was very, very down to earth. Then also he ran that studio in a way that was really fun. These are people who enjoyed um, their jobs and also people who had figured out a way to kind of marry their work and their life in a way. So when I would, I'd be invited as a lowly intern occasionally to a party or to dinner with one of the designers who worked there and their houses were always filled with, you know, there'd be posters and, you know, not necessarily expensive, but really interesting furniture and just great choices about how things were arranged. And I have to admit, I in college, I hadn't quite understood that design wasn't just something you learned and something you did for a living. It could be a way of life. And I think the the studio he led there really had to do with design as a way of life. And I was only there for three months, but it really made an impact on me as substantial as any of the ones from my professors with whom I studied for five years. Mm. That's great. Uh, three months still, uh, when you're in that situation, I guess, as a sponge, you, uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Huge thing. Um, now let's jump to you graduating from university of Cincinnati, which you mentioned, uh, was a great experience for you. You learned uh, a ton, uh, theoretically and, and many other ways. I'm sure you started working for Vignelli associates in mm -hmm. New York. What were the action steps you took to get that job? I don't think I did. I mean, I didn't have some master plan with that being the goal at the finish line. Um, I really, I mean, I worked hard in school and I, you know, I was a very good student. And again, I loved, I loved being in design school and I loved doing the assignments. And I, you know, I, I, I would stay up all night and do them, come up with three different solutions for the same thing, even if only one were required. I just, I just really liked doing design. It helps to be interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was passionate about it. I am passionate about it. But, you know, th that made a big, you know, I mean, it wasn't even like this calculation, you know, you know, I will work three times as hard as anyone else to be successful. I just like doing it. And um, it's a couple of things. While I was in school, sort of, again, I, you know, Ram, I'll tell you, honestly, I couldn't even tell you for sure 
how I came to know Massimo Vignelli's name. There was no internet. So somewhere there must have been some book or magazine somewhere that I came across. Um, but I couldn't go on Google and just search images or find his website or anything. None of those things existed then. So somehow, um, so I can't say I was like hyper aware of Vignelli and kind of said, that's where I want to work. Um, and any anything that I developed personally along the way wasn't in response to that goal. But oddly enough, I know that when I um, uh, when I graduated, I had a portfolio that had a bunch of work in it, and some of it was some of it was good, some of it was not so good. Um, you know, it's, it was kind of not it wasn't incredibly consistent. But it had one thing in it that I know that I realized after the fact was what Massimo saw that he liked so much, which is that I happened to have developed this way of doing sketches or doing specifically page layouts of the small scale, like, you know, one quarter of the size of the finished piece or half the size of the finished piece in pencil. And then I would do the final thing full size. And, um, and then in, I remember in my portfolio, I had examples of these sketches I had done and then showed what their full size, you know, result was. And it just so happens that he, designs books and a lot of things exactly like the pencil sketches that size. I made a video tribute to it at one point where I kind of just thought, uh, um, you know, the way he does it is just so unique. I wanted to actually have it, uh, kind of memorialized in a forum for video we made for a paper company client of mine. But I didn't know that. And it just happened in my portfolio before I started my final year of school, um, I was visiting New York over the summer. I never worked in New York, but I had friends there and, um, and I was visiting there and I had my portfolio with me and I thought, Oh, I'll take my portfolio around to a couple of places that are interesting. So again, you know, you literally would stand at a corner with, with spare change and at a, put it into a coin operated telephone dial numbers that you had written down, uh, you know, on a piece of paper and, and you'd call the number and, Someone would say, you know, the Vignelli Associates, and I had uh, I had a connection there who wasn't Massimo Vignelli, but I asked for my connection. He wasn't in. I finally got him on the phone. He said, oh, I'm busy. If you just drop off your portfolio. So so I dropped it off. Then when I went in to pick it up, it turned out that Vignelli had seen it and was enthusiastic about it. I don't think he thought he, I mean, he, he really, you know, he came out, he's got a lot of energy and he's very complimentary about my work. Um, I think what he liked most about my work was that it looked like his work because that's, um, he had a really strong point of view about how graphic design should be done. And inadvertently I had started, you know, kind of mirroring the way he works without actually ever having much exposure to that way. It was, it was just a coincidence basically. Um, but he, um, um, he ended up kind of like provisionally, I, I mean, he's, I still had a full year of school to finish. And he said, uh, um, you know, well, when you graduate, you can come work here. Okay. And I said, yeah, sure. But like, you know, like I didn't know whether he just was saying that kind of rhetorically or whether he literally meant that I was, whether it was a job offer, like a, effectively a contract. So it took some time to figure that out. But luckily a guy that was there, um, between the time I did that interview and confirmed my interest in the position in, in working there, um, an opening became available. A position became available and, um, uh, they ended up before I graduated, extending me a very modest job offer to be a very low level employee, which is how I started there. So what do you feel design firms now are looking for from the next generation of emerging designers? Oh, what a great question, Ram. Um, 
you know, I, obviously, you know, I know for a fact that that varies from, not just from firm to firm, but even my partners and I will look for different people and the designers that we hire. The way we set up a pentagram, every one of the partners operates what amounts to an independent studio, basically. And so I'll do hiring for my team, but, you know, Paula Scher or Michael Garricky or Natasha Jen or Abbott Miller or Luke Heyman or Eddie Opara or Emily Oberman, each of them will hire designers who, um, you know, according to their own criteria, no two criteria are alike, right? So there's no one answer to that question. Um, I do, I mean, what I, I can tell you what I personally look for, which is um, I like I mean, I, I take I take words and text really seriously, so I like evidence that the designers I hire are, like to read. I like as um, a consequence of that that they're enthusiastic about typography and they like doing it and they're good at doing it. Um, and then, I, I mean, I think just like anyone else, I look for people who are to certain degree verse, have a certain amount of versatility and originality in the way that they work and just have like sort of a, a kind of energy about the work that's sort of the, the hardest thing I think to actually define clearly, um, you know, because you could look at something and you could look at something and think it was boring. I could look at something and think it was wonderful and vice versa. But I think I personally, I can tell whether someone is just kind of almost like, you know, passionate about the work they're doing, regardless of whether it's very controlled and minimal or really kind of crazy and just jumping off the page. Mm. And so I'd say that combination of traits are what I look for. And, uh, um, you know, and then, um, I even look for them in varying degrees depending on what I think my group here kind of needs at any given moment. Very cool. I'm sure many emerging designers uh, listening to this uh, will, will be taking notes. <laughs> yeah, well, um, good, yeah. In the documentary film Helvetica, which you were involved in, there was a seg- particular segment in there from Massimo Vignelli that really resonated with me personally. And he said, a good typographer always has a sensitivity between letters. Within typography mm-hmm. is black and white. Typography is really white. It's not even black. It is the space between the black that really makes it. In a sense, it's like music. It's not the notes. It's the space you put between the notes that makes the music. So I really love that. Uh, What were some key principles or concepts that you inherited from Massimo about typography? He was a, um, I mean, I think it's well known. People who know graphic design and know his work know that he was a, you know, he was a minimalist, famously. He worked with a very limited palette of typefaces, wasn't enthusiastic at all about finding new typefaces. You know, that just was of no interest to him. And he sort of had this um, attitude about the essential neutrality of typefaces that was interesting. Um, he thought type could be really be powerful, as as is exhibited in that quote that he just uh, came, that he pulled from the movie. Um, you know, so he loved the shape of letter forms and indeed the spaces between letters and the spaces within letters all seemed really important and exciting to him. Um, but I think like, so I, so I did learn to get passionate about that, you know, just like nothing like a just nice big letter. It's just great. You know, um, you know, there's something I have to admit there's, you know, a letter that's, I've had occasion to do some signage and you do like a, um, do a letter that's like six feet tall, like, you know, whatever, like 
three meters tall. That's like not that tall. I guess, you know, it's like, is that tall? Tall compared to what? It's, you know, a building that tall is, no, you know, the smallest building in town almost, right? Um, if, if it's a, um, uh, if it's a cliff that someone wants you to bungee jump off of, that's not very tall. But if it's like a letter A, that's like a really big letter A, right? Because most of the letter A's we see are like, you know, 12 point, 24 point, 36 point. They're small, right? So if you make one that's taller than you or me, that's like a giant letter, right? So I think there's something exciting inherently about typography because we're accustomed to seeing it small. And if you see something that's really overscale, you know, and, and, it, and that's all relative, you know. A single letter on a business card blown up really big is overscale, right? And that's only, you know, as big as a card, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, 100 meters tall or a mile tall. It can be, it can be big for what the space that it's occupying, right? So he was into the drama of typography. He liked that, you know, when in doubt, he just would take a word and blow it up really big. And so that was something that I witnessed over and over again and under his tutelage did myself over and over again. Um, he also was like really into, um, because he was a minimalist, as I was saying earlier, he was very into kind of, um, trying to get the maximum impact from the minimum amount of elements, right? So don't, don't use two faces if one will do. Don't use five sizes of type when two would do. Don't even vary the size of the typography. You can keep it the same size and just have it be light and bold. You know, if you want to emphasize something, just make it bold, you know, or make it bigger. Don't make it bold and bigger. You know, and then if you want to emphasize something even more than that, maybe you shouldn't have that many things trying competing for emphasis, right? So he was about minimalism and just kind of like doing really pared down work. And I have to admit I I wouldn't recommend that as an end, end point to everyone. And in fact, I think it's good that he was certainly what he was passionate about. And I know others that share that passion. But I think we've, we, there's plenty of beautiful design in the world that isn't about that sort of restrained kind of minimalism, right? Um, so I can't recommend it as sort of like the one and only final outcome of a design process that I think is great. However, as a starting point, as a first job, to go through the rigor of that sort of um, training of fundamentals to kind of learn exactly if you've got, you know, two typefaces, what happens if you just make one bold? What happens if you just make it a little bit bigger? Is it how much bigger does it have to be before you notice it? How much bigger does it does it have to be before it's too big? You know, I mean, he was very much into these like minute differences. And as a training experience for me, it was really, really effective. Hmm. Um, I can't say I adhere to the principles that he adhered to um, because I just have always been fundamentally more eclectic in my work. Most people are than Mosmo, I think. Um, but I, but I really credit him for the basic, um, um, education he gave me when I first arrived, you know, in New York from Ohio and really needed training badly, like a, like a puppy who hasn't uh, learned <laughs> where to poop yet. That's what I was. There's a story that I really admired upon my research. I read that you were able to get an apartment that was three blocks from Vignelli yeah. and you had a key to the office and would go work another shift from around 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. And this went on for four years. Uh, you credit your achievements 
to those four years because uh, Massimo Vignelli noticed that you had extra time. So he started giving you more work and the more work you got, the faster and better you became. And this yeah. has been your advice to anyone beginning a career in design uh, to stay while you can. In your own reflection, what motivated you to double down and work harder than most? Um, well, I had the opportunity, um, the, the the accident of um, of living that close to the office, having a key, being able to let myself in and out so I could work there after hours, um, having being married to a woman who had a different schedule with her work life. My wife back then had to get up three hours before I to get to a job downtown where she had to get there earlier and be much more, much more better dressed than I had to be at my job. So she'd go to bed really early every night. I'd be bored and I'd just go back to work and work. But th- th- those, that was the conditions that permitted it. But the real reason I did it, I just, the same reason I worked hard and I just loved doing it. It was fun. It was fun. Um, and I think that sort of is, um, uh, you know, that's a dirty secret of what we do to a certain degree. You know, it's like, when we do our best work for clients, our best work in any situation, it's fun for us. You know, even when the the subject matter is serious, even when the um, the goals are like important, um, you know, there's always a moment where all of a sudden you realize, oh my god, this is fun! I can't believe that I get to do this. And I think that's how I felt then. I just loved doing it so much. I was never happier sitting at that desk doing things. And I wouldn't just be doing the work. You know, I would do work for the office. I would do freelance work i would do more likely i would do things that are absolutely free you know i just would do anything for anyone just to have a chance to do this work and i don't know if you probably heard this theory that this writer malcolm gladwell has about ten thousand hours you ever heard about this yes yep yeah so i think that was exactly i mean i i i, I used to i was really conscious of the fact that i had done all this over time early in my career. And I realized now that those were, that was my 10,000 hours, basically, you know, the time that he says the Beatles spent playing in clubs in Hamburg before they really became quote unquote, the Beatles, you know, um, I was doing that just because I, you know, I just was working like literally 15 hours a day and not feeling it, not feeling it at all. It just was fun. Yeah. But, you know, so I was able to get my, and I, and I did, so I did stuff that was bad back then. I wasn't, you know, that most of that work no one's ever seen it's sort of like was not worth keeping but uh i would make these little discoveries these little ba- breakthroughs take these little risks you know and uh with each one i got a little bit better and so mm. uh you know when i wrote that essay uh recommending that anyone trying to get ahead give that a try it's funny because it came be- it was before that malcolm gladwell piece and i think it actually helps you sort of have to make the investment as early as you can in your career, because I think you don't have the capacity to learn quite as quickly. Or I would, I'd also, I'd say you certainly don't have the energy. I say that as a 60 year old, and you probably don't have the freedom because you have more responsibilities. You, you're not at liberty just to take risks as you are that early stage of your career. So, I mean, I, you know, on my team, I'm always, if I, if I see my designers undertaking uh, side gigs or just doing stuff, I'm like really encouraging probably because I think it makes them better designers. It makes their work in the office better usually. Well, not usually, almost always. And uh, and in the long run, it's going to serve their their own professional development and kind of makes them happy, right? So mm, Agreed. 
Great. Uh, fast tracking now to your uh, where you are now, which is Pentagram, yeah. and you've been at Pentagram since 1990, and have worked with hundreds of well-known clients. In your experience, how would you describe a corporate identity versus a brand? Um, I don't know. I think people get the two things confused, and I sort of don't care if they get them confused that much. Um, that, that you know, they can. Some people call it a corporate identity. They call it a graphic identity. They call it a brand, or they call it a. I don't know. They, they, they give things different names and they usually, and what I'm usually trying to figure out is what do they think it means, right? So I don't really care what I think it means. I, I don't, I don't think it's my responsibility to correct them if they're using the words wrong. Like, you know, sometimes, I mean, the most common mistake, and this isn't news to anyone who does what we do, but I mean, sometimes someone will come and they'll, you know, they, they may, they, 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 regardless of what they call it, whether they call it a brand, a corporate identity, everything else, they'll come up with what they want to buy is a logo. And they think if I have a logo, you know, I, I'm doing this thing and I need a logo for this thing. If I have this logo, it'll, it'll bring me a certain kind of advantage to my business or organization, right? So, so a lot of times what you have to do is that sometimes it is true, by the way. You know, sometimes actually someone just needs a logo, give them a logo, and that's all they need, right? Um, but often, you know, you know, if you sort of like were to define those terms, you know, a corporate identity is a system is specifically a system for how you use a logo relay. That's one way to define it, right? There's not just the logo, but it's how you do it and what you surround it with a brand of course is something bigger. It's, you know, all the experiences, it's the aggregate of all the experiences that a, person in the audience or the consumer group or the user group has with a specific product or company or organization. And those experiences might involve logos at times. It might involve um, the service experience when they're interacting with the brand. You know, it could be um, what happens if you call them on the phone? Are you put on hold for a half hour? You know, it's like there's all sorts of things that add up to like someone's impression of a brand a lot of which has little to do with logos and graphic design and corporate identity and has a lot to do oddly enough with the actual experience that you're having with the brand, right? You know, the, do I like this thing? Does it work? Is it solving some problem I have? Is it, does it, is it, is it cost what I think I want to pay for? Um, you know, is it doing what it promised? Those are all things that have nothing at all to do with, you know, do I like its logo or, you know, is it's, corporate identity being deployed consistently. Like who cares about that stuff? If, if the thing works and it's doing its job and it's the right thing at the right price, um, you know, that thing is probably going to be successful, you know, hmm. sooner or later, you know, one of the things that happens is that something successful, it sort of somehow gets to a point where it has to sort of like manage, you know, the way it's presenting itself to its audiences. And that's where things like branding and corporate identity and logos and all that other stuff come in. So, I mean, I basically, I, I don't spend a whole lot of time musing about the difference between what those vocabulary words mean. A lot of times it's just trying to remind people that they actually, that, you know, what we're, what we do as graphic designers and what they, what most people do is they interact with other people, other human beings in the world who aren't, you know, statistics and you know, who aren't just consumers or aren't just audience members or users, but they're actual human beings who have full, complicated lives. And you're trying to figure out what role the thing you do has in their lives. And 
you may have a reason to make your thing more prominent or relevant in their lives. And they have a plan for doing that. And sometimes what graphic designers do can play a role in that process. So I'm, I'm, I'm modest about what that role is. And I don't try to overstate it for people. And a lot of times if someone says I need a new identity or I need a logo, I'll say, are you sure? Maybe the one you have is okay. Maybe you're doing something else wrong. I'll like, I'll, I won't hesitate to try to talk them out of it or figure out what it is they really need. If anything. Is there an identity that comes to mind that you've designed that has been the most personally rewarding? Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot that I've done um, over the years that have been fun to work on. Some of them extremely small and not really seen by many people. Some of them who associated with real successful things. Some of them less successful things. I mean, um, a couple of years ago, I got a call that resulted in me doing, um, working on the logo for the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. And that stood, stands out for me to a certain degree, partly because I was, um, I had to do it all. I basically did it in a really small group. Me and one other designer named Jesse Reed worked on it, um, like almost in secret for three months. And so unlike some other things I do where there's like lots of hands touching it all the time, like this is, you know, there are drawings in my notebook that look like what that logo ended up being. And to have, you know, in February of 2016, I guess, whenever it was, um, to be working on this uh, design assignment and then months later to watch television and see tens of thousands of people in a convention hall all holding up signs with that logo on it in different colors. You know, there's something kind of amazing about you really realize the impact that, um, that any of us as designers can have when when you uh, um, when you do work and somehow it just happens to be the thing that that becomes an emblem of a moment, right? So I think that kind of thing it's it's always rewarding. And I have to admit, it was it was it was rewarding. There was a long period where people just said that was the logo was stupid and terrible, and there are some people who still think it was stupid and terrible. And certainly, because the candidate in the end didn't win, some people would say, well, maybe it was just one of the many bad decisions she made, having me do that logo, that um, um, that contributed to her ultimate failure, and that's why we have Donald Trump now. <laughs> and all that might be true, but still the idea that um, we, with the kind of skill that we have, can um, do something, you know, still today, like we almost like with our hands and then see it kind of have that sort of pl play a larger role uh, to the larger public is really exciting. Love it. Love it. Yes, I do remember that. And uh, there's a lot of uh, information on that and, and examples and case studies online for the listeners if they want to look at the uh, Hillary Clinton uh, mm. designs. A few more questions for you, Michael. Uh, what advice do you have for those that may feel stuck in, their, in, in a creative rut? Uh, perhaps they feel flat and that they've been losing their mojo. Well, I mean, usually, um, in my experience, I mean, I mean, again, I can, you know, okay. So I've been, um, I've been working at Pentagram now for like more than 27 years. Right. So maybe I am in a rut and I have no, you know, maybe I'm not the right person to answer that question. Um, but, but actually what's, um, you know, the reason I've been able to survive here for 27 years and work here enthusiastically for nearly three decades like that is that um the pentagram has changed around me while i've been here so when i joined i was the youngest partner and um you know the founders of pentagram who had started it when i was uh in the ninth grade 
like I was 14 years old or something, um, you know, they were all still active. So I was re- I really felt young, right? But each one of them retire and move on, then new partners join. And so the firm is really different now than it was, obviously, in 1990 when I joined. But it's also different than it was in the year 2000. It's different than it was in the year 2010. It's different than it was two years ago, right? And so I think uh, one of the toughest things, I mean, the thing that permits you to stay in a rut is being oblivious to things changing around you and the opportunity to kind of like explore those changes and enjoy those changes. And sometimes all the changes are, are just the opportunities that, you know, new challenges provide. Right. So I think a lot of times kind of the hardest thing and what I've found I have to do is if I get good at something, sometimes people will just, um, ask me to, you know, I, I get a reputation. Oh, I'm a guy that can do that thing. And so people just keep coming to you over and over again saying, I love that thing you do. Can you do it one more time for me? Right. And, and by the way, you know, business consultants call that success. You know, that's repeat customers for a product that you uniquely um, provide to the world, right? Better than anyone else. Right. But, and so I think if you make, I don't know if you make widgets or something, maybe that's great, but I think designers is actually a tough thing because, um, you know, there are certain kinds of projects where I still remember the first time I did it and how satisfying that was. And, um, and if someone's asking to do the same thing for the 10th time, it just can't possibly be as good. Right. So I think the best way to get out of the rut is to force yourself to do something new or do the thing you do in a new way or do the thing you do with different people in a different context in a different place the different rationale, you sort of have to just force yourself to change the, uh, change the equation somehow, Mm. because if you're getting bored with one plus one equaling two over and over again, doesn't matter, you know, just doing it again and and seeing if it comes out different, isn't going to work. You have to throw in some other variables in order to kind of like have the outcome change. And I think it's, um, all of us are, are simultaneously creatures of habit, but we also have this addiction to novelty in a way, right? We want the comfort of things to be reliably consistent, but we also get bored if we don't get change every now and then. And everyone is sort of works along that spectrum. Mm. And some people are much more uh, uh, invested in the change part. Other people are much more uh, invested in the, um, uh, in the status quo. And I think designers probably by their nature are more interested in the change part. Um, but I think um, if you feel you're stuck in a rut, it's somehow because you've backed yourself sometimes through your own success or sometimes it's opposite. You've kind of gotten a situation where repetition has defined what it is you're doing. But that's there's always part of that that's under your control. And you just need to figure out what part is and then change that because that will actually be your route out. Love it. A question I ask all my guests, Michael, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to your junior self, uh, the youngster finishing high school, what would you tell him? Oh, this is like uh, um, a chance to say something really witty. So you've got good answers to that, I assume. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Like, don't reheat that lasagna (laughs) that was on the table when he came home before you just eat it. Practically. Because you're going to get food poisoning, you know, six hours later and throw up for the next 24. I don't know. Like that. I mean, that's, I learned that lesson and I, it, it was a painful one. <laughs> um, I, I will say that, um, and this is, this is uh, disconcerting advice, I would say, because uh, it contradicts so much of what I've said before. 
Um, one of the things that it took me a long time to learn, and I'm still learning it, is that um, despite the fact that I can um, talk so passionately about um, how much fun it is to do what we do and how rewarding it is to uh, take joy in the work. And if you can do it for an hour, do it for two hours. If you can do it for eight hours a day, try doing it for 16. You know, all that's true. And I'm not sure I would, I'm not sure I'd change any of that. But um, as, you know, I've been married to the same woman now uh, for um, 37 years. I've got three children who are all adults now. And, you know, I would have told myself, you know, you can be devoted to your job and be devoted to your profession and be devoted to the craft that design is, but you can also be over devoted to all those things. And you're surrounded by people who, you know, who love you and who you love and, uh, um, you owe them the same kind of attention that you owe, you know, some typeface. Right. Hmm. And I think it's, um, all of us kind of have divided, loyalties in that regard and i think um it's important to remember that you have to sort of like strike a balance between all those things right and so um i actually think younger people are much better at that than uh than than people of my generation uh and i i i admire them for that actually because i think uh um you know, the lesson that I learned when I was working for Chris Pullman at WGBH, that, that design wasn't just something you studied in school, not just something you did for a living, but it's a way of life. That is true, but that doesn't mean that does, that your profession has to take over your whole life. It means that you can kind of think through, you can bring the same sensibility to, you know, the time you spend with your children, or the time you spend with your companion, the time you spend walking your dog, mm. um, to, you know, you can bring the same sort of attention and, and, and derive the same satisfaction from it and transfer that satisfaction to other parts of your life as you can from anything you would do as your computer, as your drawing board in the service of graphic design. So I think striking that balance is something I wish I would have started paying more attention to earlier. Um, but it's never too late. And uh, for most of your listeners, they have a whole life ahead of them. And so I just suggest they think about that as when they're thinking about everything else. Well said. Well said, Michael. Uh, who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? That person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? Well, when I when I did my book, How To, a few years ago, I kind of did a double dedication of it to um, uh, two guys who were really influential in my life who had just sadly uh and coincidentally passed away uh you know within a year or two of each other and one was um mr vignelli who i had worked for for 10 years right out of school and he certainly was the person who if anyone was responsible for um for kind of teaching me what design could be and, and and using design as a way to learn about places and people and things and life and death and everything else you know and um and so he certainly had a big impact on me as a as a giant thinker um and then um uh, a, a younger man who died you know Massimo died in his mid 80s uh my friend Bill Drentel died at the age of um 60 and he and I and a couple other friends including his wife Jessica Helfand and the writer Rick Pointer co-founded a, a, a blog called Design Observer that we all really spent a lot of time working on. And he was really the ringleader of it. And he's one of these guys who thought very expansively about what design could do. 
you know, we don't have to make our impact just by doing design work. We can also, you know, we can be writers, we can be entrepreneurs, we can be thinkers, we can be citizens, we can be uh, all kinds of things. And he, in theory, was a competitor of mine for years. He operated, you know, um, he had a firm uh, that was right across the street from Pentagram, you know, uh, on the other the other side of Broadway from us uh, called Drentel Doyle Partners, which is his partner, Stephen Doyle. And we were competitors. So in theory, uh, he was um, in a position where he could just see his role as stealing jobs from us and making sure that his firm prospered while ours suffered. Instead, he had this expansive view of uh, design was more, the more, more people got to collaborate and spend time with each other, the more fun it was. And he, uh, um, he actually was a great businessman, but always sort of saw business as just a tool to help people kind of achieve, you know, goals that were about personal satisfaction, had no patience for idiots, jerks, and mean people, and, uh, you know, wouldn't hesitate to fire a client. And he was like a great role model for me, too. And I learned a lot from him. So he was uh, another one of those giant thinkers that I would credit as being an influence. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Michael. So what's next for you and everything you're involved in? Uh, this will be out in 2018. So uh, what, what's, uh, what should we look out for? Oh, um, um, in fact, I just found out working with um, Jessica Health, and we just found we're going to uh, we're going to do a book for the twenty uh, fifth uh, anniversary of Design Observer uh, that MIT Press is publishing. We're going to start putting that together uh, early next year. I'm going to continue teaching this class. I teach up at Yale with Jessica. That's about the business of design, and we have. Um, we just got um, sponsorship for another season of that podcast, which is satisfying. And then, um, uh, as usual, coming into the end of the year, there's a couple of really interesting design projects you get that seem like they have potentially really just not necessarily visible to the whole world, but just something that just would be fun and interesting to do. And I've got a great design team here of young designers who um, I see it as my responsibility just to give them a great experience in in the world as you know my early employers chris pullman and massimo vignelli and others gave for me so i've got a plenty to do in 2018 which i'm looking forward to amazing very exciting stuff uh, and now M michael how can listeners get in touch with you online well if they want to follow me i have a twitter account that i'm pretty active on which is at michaelbeirut.com and they can always tweet at me there um uh if they send a note to info at pentagram.com it can find its way to me and um i'm pretty good about responding in both um in both accounts not i won't do it in seconds sometimes but uh, <laughs> i will do it eventually so i'll give, give you that guarantee amazing thank you michael uh really appreciate your time as well i'm sure many of the listeners and uh you know the opportunity to be one-on-one -on -one with you is not something i take lightly i know hundreds of designers around the world who would love to be in my shoes uh you're truly an inspiration you know you're someone personally that i uh, looked up to when i started and and i finished my course in 2004 mm -hmm. and so it's a great honor to really chat with you and uh to document a little of your insights and reflection oh. um, that i hope that this podcast will be able oh. to to live for many years and beyond ram i've really enjoyed talking to you too thanks for all the kind words and uh, good luck uh, uh in the coming year to you as well
Thank you for hanging out with me on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to Michael if anything in particular resonated with you. I'm sure he would absolutely appreciate that. A few quick things before you unplug. Firstly, if I may, I invite you to review this podcast on iTunes. I know it may be time consuming, but that one to two minutes of leaving a short review would go a long way in keeping the show going. The stronger the reviews, the more I can continue to connect with quality guests like Michael for everyone to learn from. So head to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review. Secondly, a little teaser for our next guest. He is a father and an entrepreneur and widely known as the founder and CEO of Treehouse, which is an online technology school that offers beginner to advanced courses in web design, web development, mobile development, and game development. I absolutely love Treehouse because their courses are hands-on in teaching people how to code for a career in the tech industry and he is one of the nicest people you'll come across so stay tuned for that one up next thirdly a brief reminder to check out stocksy they are my image search library of choice you can get 15 percent off as a listener they provide royalty free stock photography and cinematic video footage and a big reason why i love them is because their library is highly curated and isn't full of cheesy overused assets. Plus the entire website is insanely easy to use. The searching, the filtering, the navigating, it's all clear, intuitive and simple. They even have a drag and drop search feature. If you have an image and want to see a similar image on Stocksy, drag that image into their website and Stocksy will populate anything that is related for you to review. So I encourage you to take advantage of the exclusive 15% off discount. Head to giantthinkers.com slash Stocksy. That's giantthinkers.com slash S-T-O-C-K-S-Y. The discount is automatically applied and the link is also on the blog post if you prefer to click through to it. For any questions regarding the podcast or anything at all, the best way to reach me is on Snapchat or Instagram. Send me a message via my handle, the giant thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Michael who said, we don't have to make our impact by just doing design work. We can be writers, entrepreneurs, thinkers, citizens, all kinds of things. 